0: If you have your copy of God's Word, I want you to find the book of 2 Corinthians this morning. The book of 2 Corinthians. Today is a Bridge Sunday. We finished uh, our second full series in the book of Exodus, and I cannot wait to re-enter Exodus in the new year. And next week we're beginning a sermon series brand new on the person of Christ in Christmas called He Is is. It really is a theological treatment of the identity of Jesus, but it will encourage your heart on a day-to-day basis as we go into the Advent season. And so today, in keeping with our plan, I'd like to actually preach to you the very last sermon of a series we did back in October called More Than Ever. I saved this Sunday to preach the seventh sermon. What, what is more than ever? Well, it really has everything to do with this time of year. The subject is generosity. And when I talk about generosity and I speak about generosity, I, I, I don't want you to think that today is any sort of special offering in any way. Rather, it's about getting our hearts ready to be generous toward the end of the year in the ways that the Lord would have us go and give and be and do and serve and minister. And, and really— Generosity revolves around the person and the character of God. The best way I could describe more than ever was in the idea of a moment. Some moments matter more than others do. And this fall was one of those moments. And I used three statements throughout the month of October. More than ever, God has been good to our church. If you were to step back and just think about the mind-blowing statistics that our ministry leaders gave you, it's obvious that God's been good to our church. And more than ever... Our community needs the gospel. I reminded you every Sunday during more than ever, that journey we went on, that 7 out of 10 households in Spartanburg County are not connected to a life-giving church. 70% of Spartanburg County is unchurched, not connected to a Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, Spirit-filled, truth-speaking New Testament church. 70%. 10,000 people moved to Spartanburg County last year, and Spartanburg City is the 12th fastest-growing city in North America. And with all that, the third statement, more than ever, we've got to do something about it. I believe every church will give an account for what she does with what God has given her in regards to resources and people and opportunity. I don't know of another church positioned more strategically to make a deep impact on reducing the number of families that are unchurched and disconnected from the gospel than ours. And so, I began communicating a fresh way to see our vision. Our vision is real simple. More than ever, we're going to seek to become a deeply faithful, remarkably healthy, highly impactful multi-site church. And as we unrolled that this fall, it really was a sea change to think about us as a church beyond the walls of this campus. And we've watched God do that in our two campuses, one at Woodruff and one at Lake Cooley. And we want so badly to put ourselves in a position to continue to do that as the Lord leads, both in the leaders that we need and the opportunities that are before us, which is why we launched more than ever. And if you're a guest, you've never heard that phrase. So I want to remind everyone of the definition of more than ever. More than ever is a three-year spiritual journey of generosity to provide financial funding for debt retirement and the expansion of more campuses. Our desire in more than ever is to enlist every member in the spiritual and financial journey of supporting our church's vision of what? Becoming a deeply faithful, remarkably healthy, highly impactful, multi-site church. So when people made commitments to this three-year campaign way back in October, those dollars go in three directions. They go, of course, to continued debt retirement here at Central. There's great information about that in that giving plan that'll be made available for you as you leave the building this morning in securing and taking care of our current campuses and future campuses, and in the upfront cost of starting campuses. We are two in, we're very much learning, but both of those campuses cost about a half a million dollars to launch in personnel, supplies, resources, and the upfit of the facility. So this is not an easy endeavor. It's not a cheap endeavor, but I can point to lives that are different today in Woodruff and in the Lake Cooley community, not because people came to us, but because we went to them. Think about it for a moment. Some of you drove 15, 20, 25, some of you a half hour or more to church this morning. You're committed to our church. You love our church. And obviously, my prayer is you're as committed to the Lord, and I certainly believe you are. It's really not about you or me. I drove 27 minutes to campus this morning because I choose to live where I live. It's about the people who live next to me. It's about the people who live next to you, who who are not going to drive 15 and 20 and 25 and 30 minutes, but they drive five minutes. That's what we saw happen. We saw 200 people leave our campus and go to Woodruff, and those 200 turned into 400 within six months. We saw about 200 people leave our campus and go to Lake Cooley. They already lived up there. And those 200 turned into 400 within a matter of months. And the additional 200 people already lived in that community, already needed a life-giving church, and found it when we went to them. And this is the great hope of a church like ours, that we now hoard resources that we not measure ourselves by how many people we can seat or how many cars we can park or how large our buildings or our budgets are. No, 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 no. But that we turn the church out back into the communities where people live. And so what I told you 35 days ago on Commitment Sunday was that whatever you committed would not set the pursuit. The vision's clear. I've heard it from so many of you who are embracing this direction that I don't call new. It's just the greatest revelation God has given us as to the next step in the vision. But you would set the pace. 35 days ago, you did set the pace for what we can do as a church. Because 35 days ago, normal working families like yours and mine, committed $9 million above our tithes and offerings over a three-year period to see us get debt-free and launch more campuses in God's timing. That's remarkable. And and, and what's going to happen in 2024 as people start giving to their commitment is you're going to provide the resources for us to make sure that Woodruff and Cooley are cared for and to make sure that our next campuses are cared for. And I hope you notice that nothing we will do in Spartanburg County will ever cause us to take our foot off the gas pedal of international missions. It's not an either or, it's a both and. But as I will show you in this passage, what I'm finding more and more and more, what is more true in my life 20 years from becoming your pastor as it was 20 years ago, is that you cannot outgive God. And that the more we are faithful to His mission and His direction, the more he provides exactly what we need, who we need, and when we need those things or those people. It's really about generosity. And so here's my request. Based on the teaching of God's word that I'm going to show you this morning, would you consider joining Laurel and I in making your year end giving extraordinarily generous? Often when we do a capital campaign, we take up a first fruits offering. Many of you, like Laurel and I, made a commitment built on a monthly number. It's because I earn my income on a monthly basis. You're so gracious to provide my salary and the salary of the men and women who serve you here. But like many of you, I'm not independently wealthy. And so I give from what I earn. And therefore, Laurel and I picked a number that we're going to give monthly above our tithes and offerings in 24, 25, and 26 to make our more-than-ever commitment. And we did so gladly. But in addition to that, as we come to the end of this year, we're going to give an extra portion to seed that offering, to give us those upfront starting costs, because we've acquired Woodruff, and now we have to make plans for remodeling, because there are staff positions that we need to fill to get ready for a a fourth and perhaps a fifth campus, because we're planning about Church at the Mill Español, a Spanish-speaking campus, because we're looking seriously at opportunities on the east side of Spartanburg, where over 400 of our folks drive from, and we think there's room there for another life-giving church to join churches that are already in that community that we would partner with. And so that's what I'd like for you to do. You can do that anytime between now and December 31st. You can make your more than ever first fruits contribution in whatever format you choose to give. And here's the reason why. Generosity is God's idea. In fact, if I were going to give this sermon a title, it would be God on giving. Really not what you say or what I say, if you're new, or if you're a guest of Church of the Mill. there's no pressure, no manipulation. I'm not passing a plate today. But what does God have to teach us about giving? I found my way into Second Corinthians often, because Second Corinthians chapter eight and Second Corinthians chapter nine are two of the most powerful New Testament passages on the subject of generosity. And the reason is is that God led Paul to plant the church in Corinth and Paul did what Paul often does. He left. And when he left, things began to struggle. And so Paul had this back and forth with the church in Corinth on multiple occasions about their faithfulness and their unfaithfulness. But by God's grace, They got it between the ditches. There was a repentance in Corinth. And 2 Corinthians is the last correspondence we have that Paul wrote to Corinth. Men like Titus delivered and were sent ahead to prepare. And one of the things that the Corinthian church needed to do is to complete the commitment it had made to join other churches in giving so that Paul could deliver resources to the heavily persecuted church in Jerusalem. And so chapter 8 and chapter 9 really form this two chapters of condensed, powerful instruction around stewardship. And chapter 9 is one of the more famous passages. Look what Paul says beginning in verse 6 as he's talking about giving. The point is this, Paul gets right to the point. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver, and God "...is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work as it is written." And then he quotes a portion of a psalm from a translation we know as the Septuagint. "...he has distributed freely and has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever." And then the passage closes in verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through supplying the needs of the saints, or excuse me, which through will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Verse 13, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. And then Paul cannot contain himself. He says in verse 15, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. I think it's fascinating that Paul starts with our giving, but by the time he gives all God gives him to give to us about giving, he gets back to God being the ultimate giver. He says, really this is based on God's indescribable gift. Next week when we open the doors of this service and we begin to celebrate Christ and who he is in Christmas, One of the most beautiful, profound, and powerful truths of any Christian is to spend some time during the Advent, during the Christmas season, just reflecting on what we were given in Christ because all of who God was was poured into flesh and delivered to us. God is the ultimate example of a giver. And here, very quickly, Paul offers these four truths about God on giving. First, God's principle for giving. It's one many of you have heard all your life. Look at verse 6. He says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. In other words, God has bound himself to generosity. When we live lives of generosity, we receive special measures of blessing from God. Now, unfortunately, There is a false gospel, alive and well today, typically called the prosperity gospel, that has completely taken this truth out of context and mistranslated, misinterpreted, and misled many people. There is multiple passages in the New Testament that clearly teach that God can and does call us to suffer, that God can call us to go without, that God can call us to go in need. In fact, Think of the writer of this. This is the Apostle Paul. Paul knew what it was like to be well-funded, well-cared for, and well-traveled, well-spoken, and well-educated. But he also knew what it was like to be imprisoned, beaten, chained, having his rights stripped away, malnourished, to the point that in one of his letters, he actually has to ask one of his protégés to bring my heavy cloak and try to get here before winter. In fact, one of the more famous passages of Paul that's often misquoted around football season is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That passage in Philippians is really about contentment. He's saying, I've learned to be content in all situations and in all things, if I am hungry or if I'm well fed, if I am without or, I'm, or if I am with much, in Christ he is sufficient. So, Paul never gave us this principle to be grabbed out of context and to be told that if you give, God will automatically bring that much more money back into your life. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about investing into the kingdom in such a way that generosity becomes a characteristic of your life. And when you become generous, guess whose character you begin to match? The character of God. So as I become more generous in my giving, my investment, my tithes, my offerings, my helping of my neighbor, my caring for the nations, then I am emulating my heavenly father. And God promises that he will encourage and supply in a special measure of favor the needs of those who were lining themselves up with his agenda. This is not just a New Testament principle. The writer of Proverbs says this hundreds of years before Paul existed. One who gives freely, yet grows all that richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers won't. So, if you want God's blessing, go be a blessing on God's behalf. And think about it. The most generous people you know may not ever have all they want, but they always have all they need. In fact, it's interesting to me to watch people grow in their generosity. And I've seen this in people in our church who are very much middle class, and I've seen people who you and I would determine to be very much wealthy realize that through generosity, They protect themselves from the root of all evil, which is not money. It's the love of money. See, that's how God's got it rigged. If you want to check your allegiance and dependence on material blessings, great great news. It's real simple. Just give it away. When you hold everything in your life monetarily, materially, With loose hands, you can lift up those hands to God and praise quickly. But when you begin to hold tight to the things you think you need, you think you're worth, you think will make you happy, what you'll find is that you'll struggle to lift up hands open to the Lord and receive his very best. Because right after Paul delivers this principle, we see God's pleasure in our giving. I know this sounds simplistic. This may sound like a children's sermon. Don't you want to make God happy? I don't mean earn his love. You can't earn his love. But I would want the Lord to look upon my life and receive pleasure from it. I know there have been plenty of moments in my life where my decisions and my behaviors, my words and my actions have not pleased the Lord. In fact, the opposite of pleasing the Lord, according to the Scripture, is Grieving the Lord. This is why when we sin, the Bible says, we grieve the Holy Spirit. He does not drop the wrath of hell on us if we are in Christ, but it certainly does not please Him. And any parent in the room understands that. I can absolutely, 100%, be totally in love with my children and completely disappointed and utterly amazed at their ignorance at the same time. And so can you. Notice what verse 7 says. Verse 7 says these words. Each one must give as he's decided where? In the service, in the presentation, under the compulsion of someone else, according to what pastor says? Absolutely not. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, so not stingily, but also or under compulsion, not giving in to the pressure of other people. But then why? For God loves a cheerful giver. Now, some people who think deep, maybe you've had your second or third cup of coffee and you're ready to dive in with me a little bit this morning, you may go, now, God, uh, Pastor, does, does God love some people more than he loves others? Well, here's what the New Testament teaches. The New Testament clearly teaches that God generally loves all people. God is love. And the New Testament also clearly teaches that he has a special love for his children, those who trust Him and follow Him. But God, like us, can't be simplified. He can absolutely have a special measure of favor that goes in the specific direction of people who please Him in a special way. For example, I certainly have a love and endearment for children. I hope you do. You're in the wrong church if you don't. They're everywhere. But of course, I have a special love for my children. It's not that I unlove or don't love or dislike your children. Well, it depends on what day it is. But I love my children with a special love. And then in that group that is my children, there are times when a particular child, will be especially obedient or be an example or be loving and kind, and my heart will well up with a special measure of favor for that child. So if me, as a finite human being, completely limited by sin, can understand general love, specific love, and a special measure of love, certainly if I'm made in the image of God, my God can have that same feeling. And this is what the Lord says. The Lord says through Paul, When I see someone not given to manipulation, not a quick pro-pro, not trying to give so they can get, but when I also see someone who's not stingy, who's willing to share, who's willing to sacrifice, I feel a special measure of love for that person. And who is that person? Well, verse 7 tells us. That is a cheerful giver. And then, of course, not only do we see God's pleasure For those who are giving, look at the next passage beginning in verse 8, and I'll show you God's promise to those who give. He says these words in verse 8, and God. Now, whenever you study the Bible, one of the things you look for is repetition. Count in your mind how many times you hear the word all or every in just this next sentence. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having All sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Who is the spotlight off now? So often, uh, when giving is talked about in an unhealthy way, all the spotlight is on you, and the strategy is guilt uh, or, or manipulation, coercion, compulsion. But Paul quickly says, Hey, let's talk about the Lord. Let me tell you what the Lord's going to do in the life of a cheerful giver. And look what he says. All grace, having all sufficiency in all things at all times, that you may abound in every good work. So there's this totality to the blessings of God. Now, let's walk this back now. This is how this works. When you come to faith in Jesus, one of the things that happens is the beginning of the process of him establishing lordship in your life. I mean, what is the step of faith? Let's boil it down to the most basic explanation. The step of faith is every woman in this room or every man in this room, regardless of your age, coming to a place where you say, I not only believe in the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of sins, for the salvation of the world, I then take that belief and I trust personally that Christ came for me, lived for me, died for me, was raised for me, has sent his spirit for me and will one day return to get me. So, the difference between me lost and me saved hinges on the act of trust, not earning, not cleaning up my own act, but trusting in the finished work of Christ. But then this is the beautiful thing. Now, this is just good, man. This is just good, basic theology. Once I step over into a right relationship with Christ and I trust Him, guess what He wants? He wants me to start trusting Him in every other area of my life. So, I trust that His ways are not my ways, so I should use words that honor Him and I should not use words that dishonor Him. So I trust that Him... Through me, can love my wife in a way that I cannot love my wife as a man on my own strength, so I trust him for my marriage. I trust that while my children are given to me and they are a stewardship that I am entrusted with, God loves them more than me, so I trust him in my parenting. I trust that in my business, regardless of whether or not I, I paint houses or I'm in middle management or I, I clean houses for a living or, or I'm a teacher, I, I, I go as a disguised missionary and I trust him with my classroom. I trust him with my employees. I trust him with my clients. And so, what happens in the Christian life is that it is a series of days, which turns into weeks, which then turns into months, which then turns into years, where you trust him with more. And as you trust him with more, he establishes his lordship in your life. So, he's Lord over your language. He's Lord over your marriage. He's Lord over your public life and your personal life and your private life. He's Lord over your emotional life and your spiritual life and your sexual life. He's Lord over every area. So, by default, if you trust him, he's Lord over your financial life. So, then giving is not obligatory. It's just another step of saying, Lord... I trusted you with my heart and you saved me. I trusted you with my marriage and you gave me. I trusted you with my children and I've watched you work in their life. And while I'm not perfect and they're not perfect, I can't imagine doing this without you. I've trusted you in times where I've sickness and you've healed me. I've trusted you with my church and you've blessed and restored us. How could I not trust you with my dollars that you gave me? And this is where Paul gets to. And when you do that, he is able to make all riches abound in you. For the committed Christian, giving not a feather in your cap. It's just an extension of trust. If I trust him to save my soul from the hell it deserved, I can trust him with my checkbook. And then when we see this promise fleshed out, look what happens in verse 9. There's this poetic treatment. He has distributed freely and given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. But then watch verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your bank account? mm This is where the prosperity gospel is like punching a balloon, letting all the air out. Pfft the harvest of your righteousness. The the goal of giving is never to get more, it's to see more of God's glory in your life and in the lives of others. So when we gave as a church to open another campus, the people in that community who are saved today, who were not saved six months ago, are the harvest of the seed we sowed. And this is the great promise that God gives us. And then he goes on in verse 11 to say these words. He says in verse 11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Not just financially. Generous people typically are generous in every way because generosity, like stinginess, cannot be contained to one compartment of your life. Typically, the posture of your giving is a reflection of your heart, and your heart then affects every other decision that you make, and that is his promise, which then concludes with his simple word of purpose. Fourthly, what is God's purpose for giving? Look as we close. He says in verse 11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, and here's what will happen, which through us, will produce thanksgiving to God. So Paul says, I'm going to take the money, and I'm delivering it to Jerusalem. And when I do, guess what those people are going to do? They're going to give thanks to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, so there's the actual tangible act of supplying needs, but also overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. They long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. This may be one of the most powerful paragraphs to close the circle of giving. What happens when we give generously as a church family? Well, at least three in this passage. People receive provisions. People's lives are changed. People literally receive food to eat. They receive the gospel in their community. They receive a campus near them. They receive a missionary in their village. And then they will praise God and pray for those who gave. So people are prayed for as generosity goes out. And then God receives praise. And what is God praised for in this passage specifically? I love this. We'll just end here. When people are generous, the people who receive the blessing of their generosity Praise God for the genuineness of the believers. You basically put your money where your mouth is, proving that your faith is more than just a confession with your lips. It is a life you invest in. They also praise God not only for your generosity or your genuineness, but your generosity. And then ultimately it comes back to praise for God's incredible gift. I am not a Clemson fan. I'm not a Carolina fan. I'm an Auburn man. It's just a special thing. The Lord Jesus did his undergrad at Auburn. (laughs) Tech team, can you cut that out of the podcast? That's actually a little bit of my flesh welling up. But over the years, you know, some of you know, I've developed a great friendship with Coach Swinney. And so yesterday I was with the team. I did the pregame chapel and had dinner with him and the team. And I was preaching on the grace of God to this team and for you Carolina fans if you make the phone call I'll go down there and preach to them I'll put on a garnet sweater and I'll preach Christ to them I'll I become all things to all people I will not wear crimson I won't even preach to them I'll be like Jonah send somebody else yesterday I was preaching on the grace of God and afterwards Cade the quarterback Kate Klebnik, he came up and we were talking and he said, you know, I've been thinking about the grace of God in my life and that story you shared, I shared a story about how we haven't made it home yet. He said, I've thought a lot about that story and he and I had an incredible conversation about the grace of God and what it means to us. Now this is a young man who has more ability than most of us and last night the entire state was watching him and his counterpart the other team play quarterback for two of the most important teams in our state two of the most important teams but as I was watching the game I couldn't help but think that underneath that helmet is just a young man with the rest of his life in front of him he could just run and throw a ball better than us and it just reminded me that ultimately everything at Church of the Mill comes down to this did he send his son to save us he did So so our entire life is most filled with joy and pleasure when it is a gift back to Him. That's why I want you to learn to be generous. Just as an overflow of His generosity in your life. You and your spouse, you and your family determine what that looks like. I don't care about the number. Care about your heart, and when we are generous people, then our church together will have all she needs for all that God calls us to do. So this is not an ask for you to give an amount of money today. It's a request for you to reflect on the greatness of the grace of God, and Paul said it best in verse fifteen: "This indescribable."